All right, without further ado, let's begin. Uh, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 4, reading through verse 13. Paul writes here, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up or arrogant on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you, who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I could wish that you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are distinguished, but you are, you are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world the off-scouring of all things until now. So last week, uh, as we returned to our study to 1 Corinthians, uh, we started looking at chapter 4. We looked at the first five verses there as Paul starts now to bring to a wrap-up. He starts to close now his, his argument on divisions in the church, this first major section in the book of 1 Corinthians as he brings us to a close. And in that passage last week in verses 1-5, through we saw Paul sort of return back to the theme that he had started in chapter 3 where he starts to talk about the apostles as servants, as servants of Christ. Of course, in chapter 3, he uses the word doulos, which is a servant or a bondservant or even a slave. And here in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, he not only uses two different words for servant, he uses the word huperites for under rower, which we looked at as the, sort of like the lowest of the low. And then he also says we are stewards, we are an oikonomos, we are the ones who manage the household of God, we are the ones who manage the resources of God, the treasures of God, or as he says in verses 1 through 5, the mysteries of God. And because of this great stewardship, it is important that the steward be found trustworthy. That he is a trustworthy steward. He is not one of these stewards like we saw in, the, in the, uh, the parable that we looked at in the Gospel of Matthew. One who, as the master is away, who abuses the servants and who abuses the resources. No, a, a steward must be trustworthy. He must work uh, in a way that is worthy of his calling, even when no one's around, even when no one is looking. And, and the, the, the context, of course, as apostles or in today's um, society, you know, ministers, pastors, elders, people, officers in the church, uh, we are trustworthy. We have to be trustworthy because we are handling the very words of God, right? These are the mysteries of God that have been entrusted to us. And we are the stewards who have to manage this resource to all of you. So it is necessary that we must be faithful. 
And then Paul goes on in verses 3 to 5 to press the point that ultimately it is God who judges the trustworthy of the steward. It's not that Paul is saying that apostles, pastors, ministers, teachers are beyond being judged by the church. It's not saying that, well, I'm the minister, you can't judge me, you guys aren't qualified to judge me. That's not what Paul is saying. But he is, what he is referring to is what was going on in Corinth. The context of the Corinthian church was that the church was sort of holding popularity contests with their ministers. The people who had come and served at that church, whether it was Paul, whether it was Apollos, whether it was Peter, and they were then dividing into factions. And the, the method of their judging was they were judging based on the way the world judges, based on the way that the Corinthian society, that Rome, Greco-Roman society judged teachers, how, how well they spoke, how well they looked, how much did they charge for their services. Because you know, if you paid a little bit for this, if you didn't pay anything for the teacher, then in, in that society, he wasn't worth much. But if you paid a lot, oh, well, then, you know, you know it's sort of like, you know, you, you know, you go to the restaurant, you go to the fancy restaurant, you paid $50 for that meal, and what you end up getting is like a giant plate with like a little bit of food right in the middle, right, and all this empty space. But then they put like drizzles and stuff on. It's like, wow, that's fancy. I must, I must be getting a great meal here. It's like, in reality, though, you'd rather just kind of go down to the street to the Legion or to Gary's in Grafton, give me the prime rib for 11 bucks, and it fills my damn plate, right? So... Anyway, off track there. Bring it back in. So Paul is not saying that apostles and teachers and pastors are beyond being judged by the church. He's just saying we should not be judged by you by your worldly, fleshly standards. And that ultimately, as servants, as stewards of God, they are ultimately answerable only to God, the one who has called them to this service. In fact, Paul goes on to say, I don't even judge myself. I mean, I may not see anything wrong in what I'm doing, but then that doesn't absolve me because it is, the one, it is God who is the one who will judge. He will judge. And therefore, do not judge before the time. God will commend or condemn the pastor or the teacher. God will look beyond the externals. We mentioned this last time that you, know, you can look at a minister and you could see you know, he's got a great ministry. He's, you know, he he's, teaches the word faithfully, but you don't know what's in his heart. You don't know the motivations why he's doing what he's doing. And we looked at that, you know, we looked at an example in Philippians that, you know, while it didn't fit exactly with what we're looking here, though, Paul was talking about people who preach the gospel with true motives and people who preach the gospel with false motives. And we don't know what's going on in a minister's heart. We don't know the secret things, but God does. And that's what Paul says here. God will reveal those things when it is time. So do not judge before the time. So heading in now to our section here in verses 6 through 13. As we come to this passage, we're going to see Paul again continuing the point that he makes in verses 1 through 5. And he does so by focusing more closely on the Corinthians' pride and their spiritual immaturity. And that's, been the, that's really been the bane, or that's sort of been the focus of this whole section, is that the divisions in the church are caused primarily because the Corinthians are they're too full of pride, and they're too spiritually immature. Right? That's what he says at the beginning of, verse, of chapter 3, verse 1. I would love to speak to you as spiritual people, but I can't. I have to speak to you as carnal, as fleshly, as 
babes in Christ. You need milk still, not solid food. So he's going to continue by focusing more closely on that aspect of the Corinthians' uh, failure there. He's going to look more deeply at the ministry of, of the apostles, and he's going to contrast that with how the Corinthians expected um, apostolic ministry to, to look. And here, apostolic ministry is, for, is meant for the service of Christ's church, not for personal or professional gain. So as we begin here, uh, fools for Christ's sake, first we're going to look at verses 6 through 7, where Paul says here, essentially, do not go beyond what is written. So after giving, the, giving us this servant, steward illustration in the previous five verses of how Corinthians should regard both Paul and Apollos and Peter and everyone else as servants, as stewards, he says he does this, he makes this illustration, he makes this point for their benefit, for their benefit in verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up, that is arrogant, you know, think of the puffer fish, you know, you know he, he puffs himself up to look bigger than what he really is. Here, you know, Paul is saying, don't be puffed up, don't be arrogant. Uh, what does the ESV say in that? Does anybody have an ESV? It says puffed up as well? Okay. Uh, so that you may not be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. In other words, I'm making all of these illustrations to you so that you don't act arrogantly in how you judge us. <laughs> That's what Paul is saying here. I've applied these things to myself and Apollos. He is mainly referring to verses 1 through 5, but you can make an argument that Paul has in mind here everything that he's written from chapter 10 or chapter 1, verse 10 to this point. And what things are we talking about? What things is he saying to, uh, that he applies to him and Apollos and to not go beyond what is written? Well, first of all, what is he talking about? That divisions are not good, are not a good look for the church. It, when you see a church with, with divisions, it just flat out gives bad optics to the church, right? A church, you would think, should be united. If you come into a church and you've got you know, one faction sitting over there, one faction sitting over here, one faction sitting over there, and they're all bickering one against the other, that is not a good look. And not only is it not a good look, it is also very unchristian, very unbiblical, very ungodlike, very unchristian like. The other thing he, some other things he has applied to him and Apollos is that the word of the uh, the word of the cross, the gospel message, is the gospel cure for divisions. When you realize that we are all one at the foot of the cross, that the foot, you know, that the message of the gospel sort of lumps us all into the same kind of category as sinners who need to be saved. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room for divisions when you understand what the gospel message truly is and that's why he says i apply this to myself and apollos that we need to continue to preach this gospel message that unifies the gospel doesn't divide within the church it does divide in the sense of believers unbelievers but amongst believers it should bring us all together that's the point of the gospel message third 
that the message of Christ crucified, which is foolish to the world, is the very thing that unifies the church. The message of Christ crucified is what unifies the church. The world sees that as foolish, but the church, those who are being saved, see this as the wisdom and power of God, the, God, the message of the cross. Christ crucified, that, that God took on human flesh, that he died in our place for our sins, that he was raised for our justification, and is now ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty and intercedes for us uh, for all eternity. That is the message which unifies the church, even though the world sees that as foolish. We've mentioned this before, but fourthly, that divisions betray a worldly, carnal attitude that is counterproductive to the mission of the church. Now, if you had to think of anything that would be counterproductive to the ministry of, and mission of the church, I think divisions would be right up there at the top of the list. I mean, I'm sure there are other things, but divisions would certainly be in the team photo, let's say. All right? Because the, 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 the mission statement of the church found in the Great Commission says, to, you know, Jesus says to his disciples, go therefore into all the world and make disciples. Now, if you are dividing over your leaders, over your teachers, then you'd be like, go therefore into all the world and make disciples of Paul, or make disciples of Peter, or make disciples of Apollos. And now you have these three kind of factions, right? That's the point. It's counterproductive to the church. The church is to be united. The church is to be uh, all people of every tribe, tongue, and nation who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior not who follow a particular teacher. So this, these divisions are counterproductive to the mission of the church. And, and it's, it's very worldly, right? That's, that's the point he's trying to make. This is how the world looks. This is what a fleshly mind thinks like, not a spiritual mind. And then finally, the things that Paul is applying to him and Apollos is that ministers are servants and stewards whom God gives to the church to serve the church, not to be the source of divisions, not to build their own followings. Right? And, and, and Paul is, you know, the point is Paul and Apollos are united on this, and Peter would be united on this. Okay, so these divisions are not coming from Paul, Apollos, or Peter. They're coming from within the church. And Paul's point here is like, look, we are just servants, right? We're just, in a way, like all of you all, except we've been called out. To serve you, not to lead you, not to build our own followings, not to build our own little fiefdoms or empires, but to be servants to the church. And the fact that you've got many of them in this church, Peter, Apollos, Paul, that's a great blessing because you get, you know, Paul is gifted in a certain way, Apollos is gifted in a certain way, Peter is gifted in a certain way. And they all bring a unique perspective to the one unifying message of the gospel. So Paul and Apollos here pre present a united front to the Corinthian church for their benefit. Look, we are servants. We are serving you. We are stewards of the mysteries of, of God. And we are of a benefit to you, serving you. And now the same thing can be said for our church today. Not just our church here, but for the church in general today. It's one thing to go to a church because they may take the Bible and the gospel seriously. It's quite another to go to a church because the pastor is charismatic, not charismatic in the, like the, 
you know, speaking in tongues kind of way. Charismatic in the kind of way that, you know, he is attractive. He is a charismatic figure. It's quite another to go to a church because the pastor is either charismatic or he's eloquent or he's dynamic or he's intellectual. If those things are absent, humility and faithfulness to the scriptures, they are poor reasons to go to a church. Guy could be up there, the most charismatic, eloquent, dynamic speaker in the world, but if he's not preaching to you from the gospel, if he's not preaching the scriptures to you faithfully, then that's a poor reason to go to that church. He's a wonderful speaker. Yeah, but what is he saying? Right? If he's preaching the world's message, what's the point? I'd rather have someone who's bumbling and stumbling over their words preaching me the gospel, the Bible, than to have someone who speaks with the tongues of men's and angels but has not love, right? He is a, banging, uh, he is a clanging cymbal and a banging gong, right? Who cares about that? The flip side to that is ministers need to present a united front. It's does not, it also does not bode well for the church when ministers are bickering with one another, when ministers cannot get along with one another. If churchgoers go to a church for poor reasons, that's on them. If churchgoers go to a church because a minister talks himself up and other ministers down, that's on the minister. Right? It's on the minister. Even ministers within the same denomination, or within the same theological tradition, or even united on the gospel should be willing to put up a united front. We are stewards. Again, it is not about us. It is not about building a following. It's not about see how large my church is and how great our giving is. It's about whether or not we are faithful to the gospel message. So Paul continues now in the last half of verse 6 that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. And to go beyond what is written. Do not go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Now, a lot of Bible scholars believe that when Paul here says to not go beyond what is written, he is probably referring to these Old Testament citations that he's already made in this letter so far. Now, Paul has made, uh, he, has, he has cited the Old Testament several times already. Um, if you look at chapter 1, verse 19, uh, he, is, he is quoting from Isaiah 29, verse 14, where he says in verse 19, for it is written, so there's your clue that he's quoting the Bible. And I, I could just say the Bible, right? Because the New Testament wasn't written yet. So when I say the Bible in reference to Paul, he's referring to the Old Testament. But he says there, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And then in chapter 1, verse 31, at the end of that chapter, he quotes... Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, where he says, As it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And then drop down to chapter 2, verse 9. Again, he says, As it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. That's a citation from Isaiah 64, 4. Or go down to chapter 3, verse 19. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. That's from Job 5.13. 
And then finally, in verse 20 of that chapter, and then again, of course, for it's written, then again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. That is Psalm 94.11. So when Paul says, do not go beyond what is written, and when you take these five citations into, into mind, the, the message put forth by them is kind of like this. This is how you would summarize this. God's wisdom will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Don't boast in any earthly things, but boast in the Lord. God has prepared for His people something far beyond their imaginings, and the Gospel is something that goes beyond our own understanding. And finally, the Lord will turn the craftiness of the crafty back upon them. Now, the Corinthians here need to learn not to go beyond this in uh, in the life of the church. They need to not go beyond these things. And that again talks about how they are focusing on the wisdom of the wise. The wisdom that God himself will, uh, will confound. Uh, moving along now. So then Paul goes on at the end of verse 6 there uh, into verse 7 with a series of rhetorical questions that Paul sort of aims his sights now in the hearts of the Corinthian problem, which is pride. So he says, Do not go beyond what is written that, you, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So here the Corinthians were acting like they were, like they were different. They were acting like they were rich. They were acting like they were self-sufficient. And Paul will continue his rebuke in verses 8-10. through 10. But when you consider here uh, these rhetorical questions, the answer to all of them is nothing, right? For who makes you different from, an, from another? Well, no one does, right? What do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. And if, you had, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't, had not received it? Well, you shouldn't. That's the point. All of their petty squabbling served no earthly purpose other than to puff up their own sense of self-superiority. That's what they were doing. They were, they were acting, again, like the world, right? The world likes to squabble and talk and debate and everything. And, and you get into, the, particularly if you get into, you know, if you have the misfortune of getting sucked into one of these social media online debates about something or another, all it is is people puffing themselves up, talking about how great they are and how stupid you are, and it's all a big thing to, it's, it's puffery to, to make a word. I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm making it, I'm coining it. Puffery, it's what it is. You're, you're, you're building yourself up, and that's what the Corinthians were doing here. They were bickering amongst themselves, and they were puffing themselves up, and they they were acting as if they were all that in a bag of chips here, and that's not, the, that's not what they should be doing. So then playing off what he had said in verse 7, Paul continues the irony in verse 8. So look again at, all, at verse 8. You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I could wish you did reign that we might also reign with you. Now, Paul is obviously being sarcastic here, right? I mean, it almost, it almost literally drips off the page here, the sarcasm, right? Um, it, or with irony, too. Already you have all you want. How many of you feel 
like this sometimes, you know, reflects as we reflect on our own earthly blessings. How, how many times do you feel like that, right? I have everything I need. You know, you reflect on your earthly blessings and you feel comfortable and safe and all that stuff. The thing is, God has graciously given to us, and like with Job, we would be well within, he would be well within our, his rights to take it all away, right? Job was a very wealthy man, and he wasn't like, oh, I'm so wealthy, but the point is he was blessed, he understood that, but you know, as he says, the Lord gave, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? And all these things Job did not curse with his mouth, he did not sin with his mouth. And here the Corinthians were like thinking, look at us, we're such a blessed church, we look at our giftedness, look at our giving, you know, I mean, you look at our giving statements, look at how many people we have in the church, look at all of the myriad special, you know, spiritual gifts that we have. And Paul's like, you already have everything? You think you've already made it? You know, he says you, would, you are reigning as kings? Would that would be so? What's that? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, the church at Laodicea. Yeah, exactly. The church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. Exactly. Already you've become rich. Same thing. Don't mistake earthly riches for heavenly riches. Right? Just because you've been blessed materially does not mean you are blessed spiritually. Earthly riches are temporal. Right? They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. They are fading. They are uh, finite. It's like what Jesus says in Matthew 6, right? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth eats and rust destroys and thieves break into steel. Store up for yourselves heavenly treasures. Or as Peter will say, heavenly riches are eternal, unfading, and infinite. And then in verse 8, when Paul says, without us you have become kings, here he's sort of, hinting at what could be another problem within the Corinthian church, and that is, namely, an over-realized eschatology. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, in other words, they were already thinking of themselves as reigning as kings, right? The Bible talks about how we will reign with Christ one day, but that's a day to come in the future, right? That is a day when Christ comes, then we will all reign with Him in His kingdom. Here, the mindset of the Corinthians is like, we are reigning already. That's what Paul is saying. You're like, already you are reigning? Already you have received the crown from, from our Lord? And then he says, you know, would that word be so, so that we would be reigning with you? The idea of already becoming kings is confusing the already and the not yet that we see in the Bible, right? The idea that with the inauguration or with the coming of Christ and his first coming, he inaugurates the kingdom, but there is a part of it that is yet to be fulfilled. So we are in this tension, as theologians like to call the already and the not yet. We already are recipients of many of the blessings of Christ, but their full consummation, the full fulfillment of it will come at a future date when Christ returns. Because Paul says elsewhere in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure... With Him, we will reign with Him. But we have to endure first, right? That's the point. If we endure with Him, then we will reign with Him. We are heirs with Christ, and we are destined to reign and rule with Him in the new heavens and the new earth, but that is not yet. That is the not yet part of the already and not yet. So Paul sarcastically says here, would that you did reign, because if the Corinthians were indeed kings, 
then the apostles would be reigning with them. We would already be in the new heavens and the new earth, and then we would have nothing to worry about. But then Paul busts that little particular bubble by looking at how the apostles were actually being treated in verse 9. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. And instead of spectacles, you know, there's a footnote that says a theater. We're like a theater to the world of how poorly we are being treated. We are condemned. We are, we are displayed last. We are as men condemned to death. So Paul's like, look, the reality is, you know, you know, he says, would that we were, you, you were kings so we'd be reigning with you because the reality is we're not kings. We are treated poorly. We are treated last. We are condemned by the world. The apostles seem to be exhibited as last of all. And this is God's will and plan, Paul says, because God has exhibited us as last of all. And again, think of how Paul has been arguing in 1 Corinthians thus far, right? The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. The strength of God is weakness to the world. This is the sort of upside-down way of thinking in the Bible compared to the way we see things in the world. Right? The, the, the Bible teaches us that the first will be last and the last will be first. That's not the way the world works, right? The world says, no, you need to go for number one. You need to go for the gusto. You need to grab what is yours. You need to grab that brass ring. But the Bible says, no, the first will be last. The last will be first. The servant will, you know, the master will serve and the servant will be, you know, served. It all demonstrates the great truth of Scripture that the road to glory always goes through suffering. The road to the crown always goes through the cross. And the Corinthian problem was that a teacher or a pastor who followed this kind of cruciform way of life, the life of Christ was seen to be a failure. Right? They look at you, they look at Paul's like, you see this more in 2 Corinthians where they criticize, you know, there's a group of people in the church criticizing Paul it's like, look, his ministry stinks. Why? Well, because look at him. He's been arrested. He's been beaten. He's been persecuted. He's been stoned. He's been whipped. He's been all kinds of things. He's been treated badly. What kind of teacher would be like that? But Paul is only kind of going through the same life that Christ went through. Christ was beaten. He was, he was treated poorly. He was not, you know, many people turned away from him. No one would say Christ was a bad teacher. So here the problem was the Corinthians had a theology of glory, not a theology of the cross. Theology of glory is like, you know, we go on and everything is wonderful and, and we become kings, but the theology of the cross is that the road to glory has to go through suffering. The road to the crown has to go through the cross. And here, the mark of a good teacher wasn't how much he suffered, but how big his following was and how much he charged for his, for his teaching. That was the Corinthian way of thinking, the worldly way of thinking. To see apostles here pulling up the rear was not something that the Corinthian church valued. And here, the imagery that Paul uses about the, the, the apostles being made a spectacle and, and, and being displayed last is uh, imagery of what the Roman legions would do, right? So when the Roman legions 
conquered a nation, they would then take those who they have captured. And as the Romans are walking back to Rome, they're marching back to Rome, the, the captives would be displayed last. They would be last in the line. And that's what Paul says. That's how, kind of how the world treats us. We are those who are displayed as the, you know, the servants, as the slaves, as the, the chattel. That's how we are seen by the world. But again, given the upside-down way of thinking in the New Testament, when evil thinks it's one, that's when God turns the tables. When was the point in the Bible that evil thought it achieved its greatest victory? At the crucifixion of Christ, exactly. Right? Satan was like licking his lips. He was probably rubbing his hands like, you know, the... The evil guy in The Simpsons, I forget his name, the guy who runs everything. Anyway, um, yeah, he's like, oh, I got him now, I got him now. And he's crucified, and that, at that moment, that's when Satan realizes that his head has been crushed by the heel of Jesus Christ, right? Because that was the, the greatest tragedy in human history, the greatest evil perpetrated by mankind was turned into the greatest victory of mankind and the greatest victory achieved in Christ. And Paul talks about that in the book of Colossians in chapter 2, verse 15. Actually, I'm going to bump up to verse 13 where Paul says, "...and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then in verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So at the victory of the cross, Christ, instead of the apostles being the spectacles, he has taken all the evil powers and all of the all of the evil, you know, Satan and all of his minions and all those wicked people who follow him. They are the spectacle. Because Christ is one. He has achieved a victory and we are victorious in Christ. So the world thought it won when Christ was crucified, but in actuality it was Christ who won and then the enemies of God will be exhibited in open shame. Then Paul then goes on and gives the main point of this passage, being fools for the sake of Christ in verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. So now Paul goes back to the sarcasm with which he used in verse 8. The apostles are the ones who are seen as foolish, but the Corinthians are wise. Again, you have to read that with sarcasm and irony. Oh, you are so wise and we are fools. You are so strong and we are weak. You are held, you are distinguished, and we are dishonored as apostles. This is a call to look beyond the world's way of thinking and judging. That's the mindset that led to the divisions in the church. And it needs to be jettisoned. It needs to be rejected by the Corinthian church. Now, finally, wrapping this up now in verses 11-13, in contrast to how the Corinthians saw themselves right as rich, as arrived, as kings, as wise, as strong, Paul here now gives them a glimpse into the, and I'm using this in quotes, right, the glamorous life of the apostles here. 
in verses 11 through 13. To the present hour, we, the apostles, me, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, and all the other apostles and ministers, to this present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things to come. What does the ESV read there for the end of chapter, uh, verse 13? Does it say scum of the world? Yeah. Okay. The filth, the scum, yeah. Neither one is very appealing. You know, if you ever like wiped up soap scum in the bottom of your bathroom sink, it's, like, you know, it's kind of what Paul is saying. That's what we are being treated like. Now, the one thing that needs to be understood here is that the Corinthians believed that the sign, again, the sign of a valued teacher was, was um, a wide general acceptance by the world. In other words, if the teacher was valued by the world, then the Corinthians, that's, that's how they valued them. And that was their worldly mindset. The worth of a teacher, as we said earlier, was found in how big of a following he had, how popular he was. And you see this even today, right? We talked a little bit about this yesterday in our men's group. But think of the popular Christian teachers you see on TV or in the bookstores or whatever, right? No one in the world is abusing Joel Osteen, right? No one abuses him. No one criticizes him too much, right? Nobody is persecuting Joyce Myers. No one is trying to silence Benny Hinn. The reason being is that Satan doesn't need to silence false teachers. Let them speak. Let them go on. Let them continue to spew their, their lies and falsehoods and, and misrepresentations and, and twisting of the truths of Scripture. But even faithful Orthodox teachers need to guard their hearts against the lure of fame and popularity. Um, in contrast here, Paul speaks of his apostolic experiences. As an apostle, as Paul and other apostles, he suffered hunger and thirst. He was poorly dressed. He was buffeted and homeless. He was, uh, rather than receiving huge speaking fees, Paul had to work with his own hands to support himself. Again, you'll see a, a bigger more detailed explanation of this in 2 Corinthians when Paul defends his ministry there. But he talks, he lists all of the hardships and troubles he went through. You know, and again, if you had a teacher that went through that, you might not, a worldly you know, mindset might not value that teacher. Moreover, Paul and his friends never defended themselves. They never returned revilings with reviling, but rather they blessed their enemies. As Jesus said, bless those who curse you. Right? Pray for those who abuse you. They endured the slander. They endured the persecution. In other words, they practiced the words of Jesus when Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Right? If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, being in any position of leadership or authority in the church requires a thick skin, and it requires the mindset of Christ. Again, think of all the persecution and slander that Jesus suffered during his earthly ministry. Yet we're told that he never once responded in kind, right? He was, as a sheep is going to the shearer, he was silent. He could have defended himself, right? What does he tell his disciples? It's like, I could call down 
12 legions of angels right now and they will rescue me. But that's not God's plan. I have to go through the cross. One way to call out these charlatan teachers is to match their lifestyle with that of Jesus. Right? Look at the way Jesus lived and conducted himself. And then you look at some of these false teachers out there who are living in their million-dollar homes with their seven-figure salaries and their fleet of cars and private jets and their, you know, so on and so forth. All of this shows the foolishness of the cross. Those who follow the way of the cross will eventually suffer. If you seek to be faithful to the Scriptures, right? Paul says in 2 Timothy, all those who seek to live godly in this world will face persecution. Not you might face persecution. You will face persecution. It is given. It's, you know, uh, this path is foolishness to the world. Why would you do that? <laughs> Why would you open yourself up to the, to the ridicule and, and enmity of the world? Well, because we believe we have a better life to come. It is not your best life now, to quote Joel Osteen. It is your best life is yet to come. This path is foolishness, and, you, and, you, and thus you see the folly of human wisdom because no one in the world wants a teacher who is seen as the scum of the world, right? Well, who's your teacher? Well, he's, he's the filth of the world. <laughs> it's like, oh, really? Okay, hmm, interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, no, my pastor is the scum of the earth. <laughs> uh, that's why Paul, Apollos, and every pastor teacher since them are seen as fools for Christ's sake, right? What the world sees as weak and foolish are really badges of honor in the Christian church. And the Corinthian church here needs to adjust their view of ministry, and they need to adjust their view of the ministers to see them as servants, of the stewards of the mysteries of God, but also as servants who suffer for Christ's sake. Well, that's all I have for this morning.